0: Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with... Spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Good
1: afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Sundance TV HQ. My name is Tom Powers. I'm the curator of Sundance Now Doc Club and I also program documentaries for the Toronto International Film Festival and the Doc NYC Festival that takes place in New York City in November. Um, If you're not familiar with Sundance Now uh, Doc Club, I uh, encourage you to go over and and visit our friends uh, at the table over there. Uh, You can sign up for a 30-day free trial at Doc Club. Doc Club is a Kind of think of it as like a boutique Netflix for documentary lovers. We have hundreds of great documentaries. Um, we have guest curators like Ira Glass and the programmers for the Sundance Film Festival. Um, and we pick selections of, uh, of our favorite documentaries under themes. Um, we're constantly adding uh, new stuff uh, every month. And if you love documentaries, uh, you'll find a lot to watch and enjoy there. Um, so th- this is the third of three panels that we've been doing here at uh, the Sundance TV HQ. I wanna uh, remind you before I forget, tomorrow there's uh, the final panel um, here. The makers of the documentary Finders Keepers are gonna be here at noon um, uh, doing a panel. Uh, so please keep that in mind. Um, and it, you know, in a way when I think of uh, Finders Keepers, uh, it, it continues a theme that uh, that I detected that I was, as I was watching a lot of uh, this year's documentaries. Um, and that is, that is a theme of celebrity and finders keepers it's, uh, it, it's a case of, uh, of, of uh, otherwise obscure people who um, are kind of yearning for, uh, for celebrity in the case of the films uh, that we're going to be talking about today um, it, uh, the, the subjects are people who attain celebrity uh, in different ways and we're going to be uh, discussing the ways that um, uh, the, the, the challenges and kind of opportunities that come for filmmakers um, when they're approaching celebrity subjects. So uh, to um, introduce my panelists, I'm going to br- just bring them all to stage, and then when they're up here, um, I can point out who they are. Come on up, uh, panelists, uh, and join me. Don't be shy. Christine will put you in the middle. Okay. Daniel will put you here. Brett will put you right here. Morgan will put you at the end. Stephen. So... Um, <laughs> Next to me here is uh, Brett Morgan, uh, a Sundance veteran. His new film is Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, uh, that is uh, later on going to be on HBO um, this year. Uh, next to uh, Brett is Daniel Youngie, uh, who made Being Evil, a uh, film backed by uh, a uh, Indie Films. Uh, Daniel's also... Uh, uh, no newcomer to documentary film, he's made films like Iron Ladies of Liberia and uh, the Lego uh, documentary. Uh, next to uh, Daniel is Christina Goolsby, uh, who, uh, with her uh, co- filmmaking partner Ashley York, made the wonderful film Tig about the comedian Tig Notaro. She, uh, she's the one panelist here who has a living uh, protagonist. Um, next to uh, next uh, to Christina is Morgan Neville, uh, who was here a couple years ago with uh, 20 Feet from Stardom. He's back this year with his film Best of Enemies about uh, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley and their famous debates in uh, 1968. It was just announced today that that uh, film has sold to the distributor, Uh, Magnolia in partnership with uh, Participant. Um, So we're glad to have uh, Brett here. And then the end is uh, Stephen Riley making his first visit to the Sundance Film Festival with his film Listen to Me Marlon about Marlon Brando uh, tapping into um, some uh, never uh, before uh, seen or heard um, uh, archive materials. And uh, in fact Listen to Me Marlon is going to be playing um, right next door at the Egyptian Theater at what time uh, today Stephen? Uh, 2:45. So, uh, if uh, if you feel suitably intrigued, uh, you can go line up for "Listen to Me, Marlon." So, uh, uh, you know, of the things that I want to talk about um, in uh, in this hour, and we may go other places too. But kind of the place I wanted to start is that for a documentary maker taking on a celebrity subject. Um, you know, in one ways, they have a, uh, a terrific advantage in uh, in reaching audiences because they're dealing with a, uh, a known subject. And uh, I think sometimes documentary filmmakers who are working on you know more obscure subjects feel a little envy for uh, for filmmakers who are working on um, on famous uh, uh, subjects. Um, on the other hand, with uh, with the famous subjects comes all kinds of other uh, strings attached uh, in, in dealing with the material that. Uh, um, that you need to acquire, uh, you know, footage and other uh, material, in, um, in navigating all the other people who have a stake in, um, in that celebrity's uh, career, family members, uh, uh, professionals, other uh, critics who have different takes on, um, on a life. So I want to, you know, uh, get into to talking about uh, some of that. To start off, I, I'm going to ask each filmmaker to, um, to just to, uh, give a little bit more of a description of your film. And you know, each of you, I think, um, a- had an opportunity in making this film of access to something special, either access to uh, special material or, um, Christine, in your case, access to uh, the, the person herself, Tignitaro. So, can I ask you to, starting with you, Brett, uh, talk about your film and and what you know? What was it? What was the access you had that made it special?
2: Uh, My movie's Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck is an eight-year journey. Six years of those were rights, Um, getting all the rights and wrangling everything together. Once all that was accomplished, uh, Courtney Love and Francis Cobain gave me keys to his storage facility, in which all of Kurt's possessions were housed. And we had uh, full access to that for um, whenever we needed to go in there during production. Um, I was given Final Cut on the film, so we didn't have any issues with control or anything else. And what's really remarkable about this, and I still don't—it still boggles my mind—is Courtney. You know, she didn't go into the storage unit and clean it out before I got there to make sure, like, there was nothing that I shouldn't see. It was she hadn't been there in years and. She just wanted to let you do that. That was. She's (laughs) basically house cleaning, and uh, and house organization. And I just I don't think for to have that degree of trust from a subject, particularly someone that controversial. I think is that was that was pretty remarkable. And I think that's you could see the in the film. It's rather unflinching look at Kurt. Uh, Daniel, talk about being evil. So my film is about uh, Evil
3: Knievel, who was a childhood hero of mine. Childhood hero of 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 a lot of. Particularly men from my generation, but a man who was not always terribly heroic at times. Um, and uh, the film was predicated on access to a guy named Shelley Saltman, who was Evil's uh, promoter, who he beat up with a, with a baseball bat, an aluminum baseball bat, and that uh, that really precipitated the end of Evil's career. So, our in many ways, the tone of the film, or the tone of part of the film, was was uh, dictated by that. That was the access that started the film. But then we also had the buy-in from the family, from the Knievel family, and so I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but we kind of uh, vacillated between those, the two poles that you might see there in terms of tone.
1: Christina?
4: Uh, my film is Tig, about the comedian Tig Nataro. Uh, You may have heard about her journey. She uh, had experienced in four months a series of tragic events. She got a C. diff, which is a bacterial infection. She was losing a pound a day and nearly died. Um, After that, she received a phone call that her mother had fallen and was not going to live, so she had to fly while she was physically ill, go be at her mother's bedside as she was dying. Then she came home, got out of a relationship, and after that found out she had breast cancer and both of her breasts Uh, she ended up doing a stand-up set about that and it made she woke up in the morning and it had gone viral overnight because people were tweeting about it Uh, we follow her journey as she is uh, becoming incredibly famous while she's still grappling with a physical transformation dealing with cancer the loss of her mother and uh, potentially falling in love
1: Morgan
5: my documentary is called Best of Enemies. I did it with uh, partner, Robert Gordon. And um, this is an interesting process for a documentary. It started with a bootleg copy of debates between two public intellectuals, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. And uh, Robert called and said, I just went to a museum and they showed this bootleg tape of these debates and everybody stayed afterwards, transfixed and argued for hours. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Do you want to see them? I said, of course. And... Um, and I immediately saw that there was something, something big here. I mean, not only do you have kind of two towering figures in America, um, but it's a way into their stories, and it's also a way to talk about media and the potential of media, um, both good and bad. And the film really becomes kind of a cautionary tale about media told through these
1: two figures. So, Stephen, talk about Listen to Me, Marlon.
6: Uh, yes, yeah, so Listen to Me, Marlon um, came about two years ago. I was approached by Passion Pictures, um, one of the producers there I've worked with a few times. To, uh, he asked me, would I like to do a documentary on Marlon Brando? And we were already in touch with the estate who, um, who coincidentally at that very time were just unpacking all the boxes that have been in storage for 10 years since Marlon's death. And, um, and all this material was coming to light um and so i was obviously fascinated by seeing you know, what exactly was in there and i thought I mean, how amazing it would be if we could um, ever even imagine to t- uh, tell a story on Marlon brando entirely in his own words uh, especially given the fact that he never gave those interviews during the course of his life and he was um famously very secretive incredibly private man obsessed by privacy so um uh so the that amb- that was an ambition initially and when and the the, the next problem was tackling 300 hours of material which we had, which was fantastic. Um, So the film is composed entirely of that. It's all in Marlon's own words. And it's um, something like a stream of consciousness. You know, you really, I really wanted to make sure that people felt like they were right inside Marlon's head. And the question always remained, who was the real Marlon Brando? And um, I hope in the course of watching the film, that's revealed because who better to tell the story of that enigmatic and complex character than Marlon Brando himself?
1: So all of your films go to some pretty tough places uh, uh with your subjects. these are no one would call any of these films a hagiography hey, uh of your subjects um, you, Brett, you talked about having uh, uh editorial control, and I take it you know uh, all of you had uh, you know some form of uh, of editorial control um but but nonetheless i'm I, I imagine there's still some kind of you know push and pull there with wanting to represent a subject that feels true to you um, and, but having to navigate strong feelings that might exist with you know, family members or other people who you're kind of dependent on for, for getting material you, you, you probably don't want to make a film or, or there be consequences making a film that family members are going to be denouncing uh, if, uh, if, you, if you go up can, can any of you reflect on the, you know, the, the, the kind of tension that exists in that place?
2: Well, I, I'll, I'll start um, with with Kurt. Uh, nobody. Uh, the, the idea was not to sort of um, put him on a pedestal or bring him down. It was to look him in the eye. And to take a really honest look at it, it was really important to both Francis and I. And we felt that we were the only two to tell the story because if the mom told the story, she would have it look one way. And if Chris told the story, it would look another way. And because we weren't, as Francis said, you know, she's the only Cobain who she didn't know Kurt um, and could look at it more objectively. Um, for me, the hardest part was when I showed the film to Kurt's mom and sister, and I said to Wendy before the screening, I said there are things in this movie that no mother should ever have to see of her son, and there are things in here that your son would not want you to see of him, you know, being having sex with Courtney and um, being really, uh, really messed up on heroin while he's taking care of his daughter and some just terrible imagery, and. Um, When the movie, after I screamed for them, it was really tough, really tough. I mean, it was the harshest, the hardest reaction I've ever experienced in my life was Wendy Cabane at the end of the first time she saw the film. She nearly lunged at me. And and I had a talk with the sister, and she said, you know, and I got very close to Kim when we were making the movie, and she said, you know, man, she said, you know, my brother was so embarrassed of his heroin use, and, you know, you really think Kurt would want people to see him looking like this. And I was like, you know, Kim, the one thing you've always told me is that Kurt's worst fear was that he would inspire other kids to do heroin. And I said, I hadn't thought about it until now because I'm not a social issue documentarian, but the reality is not only is this not romanticizing heroin use, it's almost demystifying it in a way. And, um, And as a result, Maybe there's a kid out there who who's like smokes pot, likes to do a little toot, drink beer and shit. And they'll be at a party and someone will be like, hey, man, you want to do some smack? And they'll be like, no, man, I'll drop it there. Because that was me with Christian F. You know, I don't know if you remember that film, Christian F, from like 1981. It freaked me out about doing heroin, so I stopped there. And I was like, what better legacy would there be if, just hypothetically saying, through this film, one person decides not to do heroin. So 20 years after his death, what if Kurt's legacy is to save a life rather than sell a million songs? And knowing Kurt, I think he would choose to save a life than to do songs. It was also, very quickly, really important because I think for 20 years, Kurt's been associated with heroin chic, and it has been romanticized, and it has been mythologized because we've never seen what it looks like. And so it was important, I think, to sort of demystify it and to also see his struggles and what he was struggling with. Um, so, yeah.
3: It's a great film, by the way. I love your
2: film. Oh. Really.
3: Um, we, we certainly had a dynamic with the Knievel family as well. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when we did send a link for the film, we it was viewed immediately five times. Uh, and we got some strong notes on it. But I don't think that that... I think the... Um, what was probably a, a stronger dynamic was within our own team, those of us who grew up with Knievel. And this, some of this is conscious, some of it is subconscious, uh, especially dealing with someone who's heroic to you as a child that, that um, you know, the, the, uh, you, you talk about succumbing to hagiography. I, I think no film is that more possible than Evil Knievel because the, we filmmakers felt so strongly about him as a child. And then I think that once you get into somebody's life and you, you, the, the farther you dive into it and the less perfect you realize they are, as a filmmaker, sometimes you find yourself pushing to the other end of the spectrum. And uh, thankfully, there were, there were voices on both sides of the aisle during production, especially during post in our film, that hopefully had us
1: going down the middle, we hope. Now Christina, you're a little bit of an outlier to some of these other films that your subject was alive and, um, and has been, uh, you know, Pretty out there about some of the the toughest parts uh, of her life, but um, but uh, you know it's a little bit more tricky dealing with a, a live subject.
4: Yes, uh, my partner and I, Ashley York, when we first started filming, I think that Tig thought that she, I mean, of course, she thought she was a, had already a, experienced the worst that life has to offer, you know. And now, you know, this film is not just simply a celebration of Tig because we were with her as she continued the struggles, and I think that Tig wasn't prepared for some of the struggles that she was getting ready to face. Uh, I think she thought she was on the other side of that. And so for her to uh, allow us to be there with her to witness, and take part in very intimate, personal events, I think were surprising for her, and not necessarily the content in which she had expected for us to... Well there's better. a difference
1: when she's going on stage and presenting her life. She's controlling it. She's controlling
4: what, you it. Know. You know, when there was like a personal struggle, I think that she didn't anticipate to uh, recreate her entire... Uh, comedy. you know, She had done a set that was outside of what she would normally do, actually completely different than her normal sort of comedy and then everyone in the world had a specific expectation for her and who she would be now and she was left very confused as to who she was and in a personal state of devastation and had to really grapple with that. Uh, also very intimate health issues that she was going through. I think that was not an expectation that she had. Um, and her personal like, love life, uh, the, the people that she... Stephanie Allen, who was her girlfriend, I think, who started out as her friend in the beginning and allowing us to sort of document the uh, uh, romance. Uh, So it was, yeah, it was a surprise for them. The access was difficult. But the great thing about Tig is once she signed on, she said she was not going to, she had to grapple with it. She wanted the cameras to be off on date one, but she went for it and did allow it. So we were very fortunate.
1: Morgan, in the case of your film, you're dealing with two subjects, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, who were you famously polarized their entire careers. In fact, in some ways, their careers fed off of their antagonism uh, uh, for each other. Um, did you have to navigate, um, you know, things with their estates at all or families?
5: Well, first of all, there's something somebody said to me years ago. As a commissioning editor at a documentary biographical TV series who said, the, the dead are the better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, when we started the documentary, Gore was alive and we actually interviewed him. It was the first interview we did and we decided not to use it for, for a number of reasons. Um, but Gore had said the untelevised life was not worth living. Uh, he also said there are two things you never turn down, sex and appearing on television. Um, so I think in spite of anything we would have done, I'm sure he would have hated our film um, just because he was critical of anybody who gave equal weight to or even A modicum of weight to anybody other than himself Um, and I used to work for him too that's a whole other story Um, but I think both of them um, so Gore had no immediate family he left his entire estate to Harvard even though he didn't go to Harvard but I think they promised him a room next to the Henry James library and it sold him on it and Harvard gave us everything for free it was actually kind of amazing they had there were no restrictions on any photos no costs, no anything it was pretty amazing And Buckley, um, you know, he had a TV show firing line for 30 years. He gave that entire archive to the Hoover Institute who licenses that very cheaply. And that was also kind of a bonus. Um, Chris Buckley, his son, wouldn't do an interview for our documentary. We tried three times. We interviewed two of Bill's brothers. Um, But I would think that, you know, Bill similarly liked to be on television. He had a public persona. And in a way, this film is not, in no way, a comprehensive biographical documentary of both of them. It's really a biographical documentary about a relationship and the parts of their lives and their personalities that intersect and rub up against one another.
1: So, Stephen, if I understand correctly, you were getting material from the Marlon Brando estate. You, were, you had a relationship with the estate that made this film uh, possible. Um, wh- what was that relationship like in terms of, you know, t- in, in your film, you also go to some very dark places of, of Marlon Brando's uh, life? How was that to navigate?
6: Well, I mean, um, we were privileged with just fantastic support from the estate. I must admit, I I was under the impression that there might be a lot of stuff that would be withheld or there may be a degree of vetting and that that we might not get access to everything. But, in fact, there was a huge amount of trust um, in supplying us with the the lot. And it was was very important for me to um, to have that material and to have done other research. I spent about four months in pre-production, like uh, longer than I normally would, because I really wanted to figure out who this guy was. um, (coughs) He remained... um, a mystery for quite some time. I was getting you know, very contradictory um, accounts of him, mainly in, mainly from the books. I mean, there were some books that were a bit more sensational or would, would target Marlin, and, uh, as well as the hagiographies uh, and ones that lauded him as a genius. Um, and then I went out to go meet all the people from his life. Um, uh, they don't appear in the film, but I, I extensively interviewed um, uh, uh, people from his family members, his children, his um, work colleagues, um, fellow actors, that kind of thing. And, and, and because, you know, it might sound a little bit corny, this, but almost like my first commitment in making the film was to Marlon Brando and to, actually, if I was going to go this way and, and present the film entirely in his own words, I, I wanted to get that right and as right as possible and really better read between the lines because the guy was a contradiction. He could be two things simultaneously. He was utterly ambivalent. and He brought all that stuff to his acting roles, and that's why we love him so much. But I, and he was an arch manipulator, self-confessed, so I needed to know when listening... I had a hold on where he was going and whether he was you know whether he was trying to bend people around and i it would make me smile i'd laugh I could hear when he was um, trying to exercise things to his will, but not to make him sound malicious. I think the guy was essentially good hearted and that was my final reassurance was that I liked him you know I, I thought at the end of it, even knowing his warts and alls and uh, and foibles and what have you that um uh, he was a, he was a a guy that i understood and um and and that when making this film, this, which might have been his worst nightmare. I mean, this would have been a, a terrible thing. He was so, so private, um, and uh, genuinely so, that um, um, you know, I was respectful of that, and that was a huge responsibility. And I'm private too, so I, just, I thought, my God, I'm, here I am treading on this guy's memories and his soul. So I just wanted to make sure that it was as, as, um, as representative as possible and really spoke the things that he wanted to say.
1: Stephen, which of these filmmakers would you like to make your life story?
6: Yo, I wouldn't. I can't imagine anything more horrifying. I just, I, I just wouldn't want it at all. It sounds a terrible thing to say, but God, you've got to really trust the documentarian. You've got to really trust the editor. And I'm not sure I'm that trustworthy. Actually, I probably got more similar with Marlon than I realize. Um,
1: now, when making a film about uh, a celebrity, like a big part of telling that story is having access uh, to uh, to the material, to the the images, the recordings, um, the the music, um, the the film clips. Uh, you know, those of you who are uh, drawing upon um, uh, on, on deceased figures talk, have spoken about some different access you have. But even when you had access to the estate, there's probably other material not controlled by the estate that um, that uh, that you need. But Morgan Neville, we've spoken before about some of the older films that you and Robert Gordon have made um, on great music subjects that are, are difficult to release uh, right now because. Uh, music rights have lapsed. You, when you originally um, made the films, you could only afford to get a certain number of years on on music or or footage clips, and that's passed. And it might be cost prohibitive to um, uh, to to renew it again. In recent years, there's been a, tremendous strides with uh, fair use in um, uh, in uh, enabling filmmakers to to use clips uh, that you know just five or ten years ago probably would have been inaccessible uh, to them. Um, but I'd love to hear any of you talk about, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, figuring out, um, uh, uh, you know, those, uh, those different snafus of, of rights. I
5: mean, I'll jump in just uh, talking about music. Um, that music is incredibly difficult to clear. I mean, um, and more often than not, um, you're dealing with a subject who also controls the rights to that music and um, it it can be I mean very complicated in many cases so it's kind of a unique situation in the fair use for instance you know music fair use is the wild frontier of fair use it's only barely being used now and very cautiously at that and on 20 feet from stardom we fair used a number of very very small clips and I received many, lawyers, uh, many letters from lawyers about those, each of, when, each of which went away eventually when we presented our case, but you know, it's still dangerous to do any kind of varies with music. And so you're in a quandary oftentimes between um, trying to make a film about a subject who controls rights that you have to have for that. And um, sometimes you get artists or estates uh, brave enough like the Cobain estate or like Metallica who will let go of that. But more often than not, when you see a big band doing a authorized documentary, which is many of them, uh, there's always some sense of control. Uh,
1: Stephen, in uh, Listen to Me, Marlon, you drawing upon a lot of uh, film clips uh, of of Marlon Brando to to capture his acting peaks. Um, Can you talk about how you, you worked
6: on that? Well, originally we were um, hoping, or the thought was, because I mean, obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of film clips from ev- all the studios that Marlon worked with in the film, and we were thinking, my God, this is going to be crippling. I'm not sure that this is going to be in anyone's budget. Um, so the thought, the thinking, always there was that we would go for fair use, um, but then as the kind of the legal thing started to surface, it was just more and more obvious that we had to see clearance on 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 all these clips, and that was this was quite late. So um, it took a lot of um, uh, that but, day must have sucked. So Well, actually, well, thankfully I didn't have to deal with that. So, so, so John got directly involved, John, John Batsett, the producer, and he was phone bashing at that point, just trying to get in touch with people directly, and literally just begging and saying, look, we really need this, it's an important film, and, um, uh, and look who else is involved. And actually, and the good thing was we actually had a fair, uh, a favoured nations clause at that stage. So we got the, the, um, the, the, the clips in at really competitive rates, and everyone started to buy in on that basis. So um, really fortunate, and actually everything I didn't have to take anything out in the end from the edit, which was a huge relief.
1: Uh, Daniel, you're drawing on all kinds of different uh, clip sources. Evil Can was big on uh, ABC's Wide World of Sports, sure. and uh, 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 and uh, you know I feel like you must have also been drawing on um, footage that isn't as easily accessible as like an ABC news library, but uh, but other weird places. Right,
3: and the the news, the ABC news library is accessible, but that's the single biggest line item in the entire budget, um, and so you have to be judicious about when you use that stuff. Uh, thankfully, the Knievel uh, estate has been pretty uh, active in, in uh, if the stuff that they don't actually own rights to, going out and getting the rights to, so that in working a deal with them, we had an access to a lot of stuff. We're also dealing with one of the most documented figures of the 1970s, so there's, there's, there's stuff all over the place, and we had people sending us things. And we weren't even, we weren't really even that visible on the radar. And people found us and were sending us, like, uh, Super 8 transferred films, which was amazing. But uh, at the end of the day, there still were some pieces that we wanted to use that uh, the cost was prohibitive, and and we did fair use some stuff. But I think there's a pitfall that I learned on this film in fair use that, I mean, as filmmakers, we want to be impressionistic. I mean, fair use is is strictly to exemplify what is being spoken at that time. And, uh, you know, as filmmakers, we want, to, we want to be impressionistic. And anytime you, you do that, you're, you know, you're, you're going to wreak havoc on, on your fair use lawyer. So um, we did fair
1: use a lot less than I, I think we could have. Uh, Brett, you know, from the outside, someone might look at your project and say, wow, this is a you know, fairly big budget for a documentary. You had access to the uh, Cobain estate. You, you must have had it made. But uh, I assume that there, uh, you must have been
2: drawing on uh, stuff that was more difficult. <laughs> Uh, there was nothing easy about this film, but um, I just looked at my colleague over there and was like, oh, yeah, it was really easy, right, James? Um, I, that, that, the, I would say the, there was a moment when, I mean, after six years of, like, legal wrangling and when I got the keys to the storage facility, the facility had put everything out, all of Kurt's stuff laid out, and I walked in the room and I was expecting Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I go in this room that was about this size, and there's like eight boxes. On the, th- I mean, I was like, "Excuse me, um, where is everything?" And they're like, oh, "This, uh, this is it." And they looked small. Maybe there were 15 boxes, but it looked really small because it was in this room. I was like, "Oh fuck!" Like, what did I get? We had sold the film already, and I was like, oh, "I'm, uh, I'm fucked." And uh, and but as we started to open those boxes, the first box I opened had 108 cassettes and uh, nobody had heard those cassettes and those cassettes were pure gold so that that was that was uh that was that was pretty remarkable what was your question tom there's well I, <laughs> <laughs> the, the question was about other source materials so, oh yeah okay. uh, quick story quick story so we saw we had that stuff i'm like all right we're gonna we're gonna work with this we're gonna work with this and you know and then i don't know how it happened but some guys showed up in my studio and he said, I have a tape. He said, um, I haven't seen it. It's a hi-A tape, so we had to like go find a hi tech. And he said, I, I, I think there may be something of Kurt and Courtney. I don't have an A player. I don't know what's on it. And we put it in. And if you've seen the movie, it's the majority of the Kurt and Courtney home video stuff before Francis is born, which to me is the best stuff in the movie. I mean, it's just it reveals the side of Kurt and his relationship with Courtney that has never been seen by anyone. And um, the hardest part when he was doing it was trying to act like I wasn't that into it, so he wouldn't rape me on the cost. <laughs> so he's putting on, I'm like, huh? It's good, it's good, it's good. I mean, meanwhile, I was like, oh, holy shit! <laughs> and um, and so that and and I think having Francis Cobain's name involved in the production, because you know, a lot, cor- a lot of people are scared of Courtney, and so. Um, So, you know, a lot of people hoard stuff all these years because they didn't want it to be associated with her, but for Francis, it was a sort of great unifier, and we got a lot of... a couple little extra pieces. Uh,
1: Christina, in your film, there's a a kind of uh, key scene where you're filming in a comedy club that, uh, I think it says in the film, normally doesn't allow uh, uh, taping, the video uh, taping, Um, and uh, you know, and it would... It's a moment that you kind of would hate to miss um, on camera. Um, Can you talk about the negotiation for that scene?
4: Uh, well, yeah, th- that's Largo, who people from Los Angeles know famously does not allow videotaping. There's like a 20-minute speech before any and every show that it, all cell phones must be put away, turned off if they see you holding up thing, or you'll be immediately kicked out. Um, there was an audio recording of the original set at Largo that Tig had done that went viral overnight, but she was planning a one-year sort of return to stage, and that's what she worked on all year Uh, to to redefine her comedy, um, to go back onto that stage. So we had to work and uh, develop a relationship with Mark Flanagan. Uh, It's important to him for the experience of... uh, He owns the club, and it's everything to him, and he doesn't want his audience to feel as though, you know, there's ever cameras or to... you know change the experience at all um and it was just you know he and tig are very close personal friends um we just had to really speak to him and beg him and let him know the importance and we didn't get it for a long time and we were incredibly nervous and scared um and there were certain restrictions that we had that night but ultimately we were allowed access to to secretly film the return to stage at largo so it was quite a blessing
1: I wanna ask you for those of you who did interviews uh, in your film, what was the what was the toughest interview you had to do? And I, I wonder if you can just kinda of take us into that moment of you know there's a hard question that you have to ask uh, someone that, you know, maybe could be an interview ending uh, question, but you've gotta ask it. Um, so tell me how every, that every would... every
3: subject we interviewed, but certainly Evil Knievel's wife. I mean Evil boasted to have to have slept with over a thousand women in his life, and and uh, was certainly n- not ashamed to boast of it, while he was at the peak of his career, married to. Um, yeah, it was tough. It was a really tough interview, and uh, I guess we we worked our way up to the we worked our way up to it, and I just felt her out, and I could tell over the course of the interview that she wanted to be brutally honest, and every time that I was trying to finesse it, she was the one who was going for the for the jugular, and so. You know we just we just asked about it and it, and she was very brutally honest and you'll see in the film she says she pauses and she says i didn't like him i didn't like him and uh that was that was the single most difficult moment in making this
2: film there, uh, the, the, uh, not this film i just did but i did a film on the rolling stones a couple years called crossfire hurricane and we did um i did 85 hours of interviews with the guys and i remember the the, the biggest advantage was knowing that because we were doing a movie, if I, there were questions, they weren't going, I, it, it's like, we were making the movie, so I could ask them anything I want, because if a journalist said to them, you know, you know uh, how did you feel when, uh, when Mick fucked your wife, you know, someone could get up and walk out, but they couldn't get up and walk out, because we were in it for the long haul, and that was like a really liberating experience, knowing that they really can't stop the interview, so you can sort of push it, so I think when you have those sort of engagements with the subjects, it's, it's, it's certainly helpful.
5: I mean, by far the most difficult interview on our film is one we didn't use, and it was Gore. And uh, it, it was one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had as a filmmaker. Uh, Robert and I went up to his house in the Hollywood Hills. It was straight out of Sunset Boulevard. He, we were ushered into the living room. We set up our lights. And at the appointed hour, Gore was wheeled in in his wheelchair. It was very late in his life. He was in chronic pain. And he wouldn't make eye contact with us. And he just kept his head down. And um, after a few moments, by means of small chit chat, uh, somebody said, oh, my uncle was served in the Aleutian Islands when you did during World War II. And he said he could never stay warm. And Gore looks up for the first time with like lightning bolts shooting out of his eyes and said, I had my rage to keep me warm. And you know, from that moment on, we knew we, knew we were in trouble. And uh, <laughs> and then we started asking him about Buckley. And it was kind of akin to torture for him to have to talk about William Mount Buckley. And we had a very long three hour interview that was the most contentious interview where he, would, he wouldn't speak after certain questions. He would um, accuse us of being Buckleyites. It um, Just incredibly hostile. And um, so they usher him out of the room after three hours and uh, his manservant comes in and says, would you like to have drinks with Mr. Vidal? And we said, of course, (laughs) we're here, we've gone this far. Um, So we put away our gear, he ushers us upstairs and we think we're gonna go into a sitting room and instead we're ushered into Gore's bedroom and Gore's in bed and Gore said, "Uh, please sit down and there are no chairs in the room. (laughs) So we all sit on Gore's bed with him (laughs) and they bring in scotch for all of us to drink and we sat around on his bed for a couple of hours talking, and he was a completely different person. You know, completely, I'm not gonna say warm, but, um, you know, much you wish more- wish you had a cultural. camera running for exactly. that. Exactly.
6: Um, well, actually, I was fortunate in this, on this occasion that I didn't have to shove a camera in someone's face or, um, or a microphone, because I just, all the early interviews I did, I sort of purposefully went there and, um, and uh, just, uh, didn't even, just took my iPhone. And I'd I'd ask, do you mind if I type in a few notes on occasion into my iPhone? So everything was very intimate and personal. Um, uh, Even on matters that were very difficult to talk about, obviously um, there was the tragedy in Marlon's um, household where um, his daughter's boyfriend was shot by his son, uh, Christian. And then later on there was the suicide of his daughter, um, Cheyenne. All really tragic and, you know... um, uh, very difficult and sensitive stuff but um, I think without having the camera there it allowed me to sort of broach those subjects and to and to delve in a little more and to build relationships really with the people who I was talking to the, the most difficult interview though I must admit and again it was without a camera but I was just felt very sort of um, I'd never get uh, thankfully I don't get too starstruck but I was, I was sitting with Harry Belafonte who was very good friends with Marlon and Harry was um, uh, just, in, I mean, I, I just never experienced the kind of the sort of the, the presence and the gravitas of someone quite in the same way. But he just sat opposite me and just folded his arms and just let me sort of like bumble as much as possible to sort of <laughs> give me uh, enough rope to hang myself with. Because I think because he was very conscious, he'd never given given an interview or full interview on Marlon, and he wanted to know that there was somebody who was actually even just vaguely aware or, d- or rather done their research on what Marlon represented to the civil rights movement and all these things, which obviously he held dear. So, um, uh, but I, I just about got out of that one unscathed, but it was, uh, it was nice to spend some time with him.
1: Christine, any tough interviews for Tig?
4: Well, we were with her uh, during one of the most incredibly intense, uh, I- emotionally heavy experiences that she had. I can't give away exactly what's... But she got some devastating, personally devastating news and being with her in that moment that line of like feeling intrusive and then you have to ask after a moment of processing like how do you feel right now and it seems like a stupid question but it's like giving the opportunity is it had to happen like it could have seemed but it wasn't because we had been with her on this one thread this journey the whole time so to ask a question might seem like it would have been inappropriate or terrible but you have to and there had to be an answer and we were able to get it um, that intimacy—it's just that 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 it, you know personal devastation and privacy and intimacy is—it it can be challenging. But I think if you're fortunate enough to really develop a relationship of trust and be with part of the along the whole journey, then being there doesn't seem like an intrusion. It seems like an organic
1: part of the process. Of all these films, I, I think uh, Tignataro, on camera, what well, we see in your film, anyways, handles her celebrity with. Um, you know the the most ease. Um, several of these films, you really see a kind of toxic side uh, to celebrity. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Marlon Brando uh, really had a, a complicated relationship. Kurt Cobain did. Uh, Evil Can did. Um, I wonder, you know, uh, what what you came away with studying these lives. What you know, what you came away thinking about the nature of celebrity.
6: Um, per, well, personally, I mean, I, I found it fascinating um, just following, chasing Marlin and all the little, little sort of rabbit holes and um, uh, 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 corridors of the mind that he'd go into. I mean, he spent a lot of time um, throughout his life, like really searching for meaning, like dealing with really deep existential questions. So he was a big reader of philosophy. Um, he was a big observer of human behaviour, just trying to get to the core of, of the big questions of life. You know, what is our purpose here? What's what's our meaning? What's our nature and essence? And his own essence. Um, so there was it was it was interesting i mean i kind of i could see the sort of kafkaesque nightmare that he entered into with fame um, I, it was. Um, I spoke to Ellen Adler, who was um, um, Stella Adler's da- daughter, had a relationship with Marlon, and I asked her. Um, I said, "Was there a moment when Marlon actually, you think, did enjoy his fame?" And she said, "Yes, there was." And she said, "Actually, when Streetcar um, first came out in Broadway, and all the attention that got initially, he he said he goes, wow, 'Wow, I've really arrived, and this is something.' And it was, but it was short-lived. And I think that every, all the kind of the negative aspects, you know, started to." Um, Uh, um, uh, overwhelm him and he felt that for someone who was just so keen to be anonymous or to mingle in and to actually be the voyeur to then be the voyeur himself was just crippling but he was trapped at that stage and he was trapped he was a victim of his own success and his own artistry because he was an artist he was a perfectionist he wanted to make great art but he didn't want to be in that fishbowl but he was condemned to that and he was the prototype of the modern obsession with fame i fear i feel and um uh, and unlike Monroe and Montgomery Clift and James Dean, you know the fact that Marlon survived was a testament to his strength because I think it really did break him down, and and he um uh, and he was devastated by the fact that that nobody he felt could ever see him again and could ever see him as Bud Brando, um, because you know that fame had just just got in the way, and, and I can I can see that, and people can't really understand that that you wouldn't want to be famous. I mean, who doesn't want to be famous? Is the is the is the thought, but. I mean, I, 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 I'm really not so sure of that question. I think Marlon might have had the right answer.
5: I mean, to some extent, our film's about the intersection of celebrity and politics, um, because both Buckley and, and Vidal understood the media and uh, their public persona more than any other intellectual of their, intellectuals of their generation. So, I mean, they were true, they put you know, the public and in public intellectual, um, so they would not only go on TV show. Unlike a
1: lot of intellectuals of their generation, they were happy to go on TV.
5: Yeah, so they would not only go on The Tonight Show or The Jack Parr Show or The David Susskind Show, they would go on Laugh-In or go on Truth or Consequences. And they, would, um, they played this role, and that's part of it, which is they had personas they were playing publicly on TV that were not quite the same. I mean, Christopher Hitchens told us something that other people echoed, which is after he did Firing Line, uh, and they had this very combative half hour together, as soon as it finished, Buckley turned to him and said, oh, do you want to get a drink? And Chris said, sure. And they ended up becoming, you know, if not friends, friendly. Uh, but that was something I heard over and over, that there was a certain sense of theater that they both understood. I mean, really, from kind of classical theater, it was something they both loved. And I think they were really kind of playing that role to further their own agendas.
4: And you know in our film The Tig's Fame sort of we, we're, we're capturing her become famous on camera at like the most vulnerable time of your life like you know she's got a photo shoot with Elle like 3 weeks after her double mastectomy you know and she's and she's like there's a moment in the film she's like oh i've got cancer let me take your picture she's going through the loss of her mother and it's stressful you know all these phone calls and all of a sudden you find yourself thrust in this light and you're still so incredibly vulnerable um, didn't look like a lot of fun to me. It looked like really stressful and scary. And how, do you, you know, it takes a lot of strength to be able to stand up and like not be taken down by all that pressure.
3: Um, I think a lot of filmmakers, um, whether they admit it or not, want of, want some redemption in their film. I know I do in my film. And we were dealing with a figure who as a man, uh, there were certain things that were really tough to redeem. Um, although he did, he did make, strides in in his last years um so but the the redemption in the film if there is redemption is hopefully in what he gave what he gave us and so i don't i don't purport to our film being incredibly deep film but to the extent it is it's a rumination of what we need from our our heroes what we take what we take from them and and if they if they really if they're the kind of person who pushes the edge you know then when they go, if they do go over that edge, are we? Is it right of us to condemn them for it? And in, in an interview, one, uh, one of our interviews, I said, you know, we all love Mike Tyson until he bites someone's ear, you know, and then he's reviled. And of course, Johnny Knoxville, standing next to me, said, I still like Mike Tyson, <laughs> uh, but uh, I do, I do think um, the redemption in our film came at looking at what this man's given the world, even though he was a, a less than perfect person.
1: Uh, Brett, you've gotten uh, close in your films to a lot of different kinds of fame from Robert Evans and Kid Stays in the Picture, The Rolling Stones, and, uh, and now uh, Kurt Cobain. Um,
2: what are your reflections on, on that? Well, Evans, of course, embraces fame and uh, is one of the great self-mythologizers of the you know, 20th century. So clearly there's a man who, you know, when he would go to the set, he would make sure he brought a photographer with him. And so, um, you know, when he said that, he, you know, he produced all these movies that he was head of production at the time. I mean, you literally, you go through the archives and there he is arguing with Roman Polanski. And so he was had a great sense of history and embraced it. Uh, and also to the point, I remember when I first met him, I said, uh, I said let's go out to dinner. And he said, uh, uh, "Never good. I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, uh, he'd be recovering from a stroke. Uh, can't let anybody see me like this. As in this town if they simulate like this and then we're looking it if you can't hear me that's what it was like when he, 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 what? what was that um, and so so Bob obviously uh, understood the whole the kid stays in the picture is about image it's a movie in which a guy gets his career because he looks like someone and then loses his career because of his image gets tarnished and then, you know, so it's all about image making. Uh, the, the, the Stones, obviously that was a big part of it, and how they, 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 they sold that image out to the world. So they were very conscious of it. Kurt, I mean, it's, the, everyone knows, it's, uh, you know, if you, if you don't feel good about yourself and you have a, a, a negative self image um, and everyone in the world is worshiping you, it, it doesn't make you feel any better. And I think in the case of Kurt Cobain, if he never was famous, um it, it had an immediate it had a serious impact because his child was taken away from him and if he was an anonymous person that would have never happened and so that had major life consequences severely
1: uh we've time to take a couple questions uh we'll bring you a microphone uh, bring this gentleman here a microphone Now we'll turn on your microphone. Okay, Is this better? No, but just speak loudly. Okay. Were were there any surprises? I mean, like when you were going through your source material or filming your subject, did you come across anything that uh, about your characteristics about your subject, uh, subtle or not so subtle? That sort of surprised you. You weren't really expecting.
5: Uh, One thing I just thought of is uh, I actually went through Gore's papers at Harvard. And in these debates, he has these incredible bon mots, these incredible insults he's coming up with. And I found the actual papers he had in his lap during the debates, and he had pre-scripted pages of insults against William F. Buckley. Some great ones he didn't use, too. Um, But that told me a lot about Gore, too.
2: Kurt spent a lot of time by himself, and and he he was recording all the time. And nobody ever went through those tapes, so when we started going through those tapes i mean there was an audio autobiography that kurt made that he performed nobody has any idea when it happened why it happened i later found a a journal where i could see that he wrote the story out before he performed it but it's the story of how he lost his virginity and essentially the story of the the clue to what happened to him in the end is is immersed in the story it was like rosebud and so that was powerful and we found every day was like we found kurt singing a Beatles song and I loved her. Nobody had ever heard it. And I would ask everyone around him, do you guys ever... Because he was that's what he did all day. He just would record shit. And nobody had ever sort of gone through it. So every day was like discovering... We, you know, we ended up with 50 hours before her Cobain music and just, just amazing shit. When you're like put on headphones and you don't know what's next because they're not labeled. So you just put the tape on and then like suddenly... You're like transformed. Like there's this. If you've seen montage of heck, there's a moment where Kurt is writing a song and the phone rings, and you hear him walk across the apartment, and he. You hear him go, "Hello? No, she's at work right now. Um, okay, thank you, bye." And it seems really simple, right? But part of the story was Kurt's girlfriend was work. Would go to work, then they didn't let him sit around and record. So like when I heard that little thing it helped fill out this larger narrative picture and you know, literally was like, we can construct a scene around this. And so was, I think every day when you're dealing with archives, it's-, it's, it's, yeah, it's,
3: it's We had the same experience because we had uh, tapes that were recorded by Shelley Saltman when he was on the Snake River tour with Evil because uh, he, he was writing an authorized biography. And uh, there's some pretty vitriolic moments in those tapes, uh, some pretty off color. Jokes as well, and uh, i don't I think the, the amount of vitriol surprised, surprised us, and we actually didn't put the worst stuff in the film because we just it was some of it's pretty vile um, but I think for me, the most surprising thing was that the people that loved uh, this guy the most were in fact sometimes the most honest about the warts and all uh, and but then the, the people who had the most uh, to hold against him after all these years we're the most forgiving uh, and i don 't know what i don't know if that 's just the palliative uh, effect of time or evil's character or if that just talks about how how we are as human beings, but it was that 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 surprised me the most
4: I think the surprise in my film just came from being with someone who is so protective and 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 you know, has this image and is this professional character, and is a very private person. And like I said at the beginning, it was like, oh, the struggle's over. I'm on my way up. When the shit hit the fan and things got super difficult or very intimate and very personal, uh, that we were allowed to continue to be there uh, on that ride. And the vulnerability and openness that was uh, that was shown is astounding. Um, I think that her fans and, and people who don't know her at all, um, there's just some uh, so many messages and inc- so many incredibly intimate moments that occur that was a, if you would have told me on day one that some of the, the th- events and some of the things that occur on film happened, I wouldn't have believed you and I'm sure Tig
6: would have not agreed to do this film.
1: Stephen any uh, s- uh, discoveries that stand out for you?
6: Um, I'll be honest, I mean every day was, was like unwrapping a uh, presence because you'd get, you'd get the, um, the tape in. I might have a, um, you know, a, a, a label that maybe we uh, they, they, I mean actually Marlon meticulously labeled this stuff but the labels didn't always make sense, but either way, he was... He Some really of the labels
1: kept, would say, like, self-hypnosis, right? So,
6: uh, for example, yeah, I mean, he had these self-hypnosis tapes, which were fascinating when I heard those, because, um, because Marlon was doing a lot of meditation, especially in the last 10 years, and especially in the aftermath of these tragedies that, um, that um, happened to him and his family. And so he would um, he would go into he got very interested into into um, transcendental meditation and and biofeedback. Um, I had a long conversation with Deepak Chopra, who he was very good friends with, and and he really delved into this and in, and also into the collective unconscious. He was reading lots of Jung, but anyway, in terms of applying it to himself, he'd do these meditation tapes, and it was um, it was quite clear that Marlon, you know, as, as brave and stalwart as a man as he was and a provider for his family, very much so. He had massive moments of insecurity and panic attacks. And he'd talk about this, you know, he'd talk about these palpitations and, and, and things which, I mean, it was very, you know, obviously the guy was, was, was suffering. But these tapes, and there were lots of them, then took us on a regressive hypnotherapy um, journey uh, he was doing his own hypnotherapy and, and taking us back into time, where he was trying to delve in a Freudian way into his past to figure out when things went wrong. So he t- he's, t- he's t- telling a history while he's telling himself to calm down and to breathe deeply and to do all of these things. And it's a nice, it, it, well, it was narratively, it was, it was, it, it was very helpful in terms of allowing us to go back to these hiding places that Marlin called them and to to to, to check out these um, uh, the, the the source of his insecurities and to figure out the. Um, the bad habits which he, th- he thinks we all collect in the first 10 years of our life but Marlon more so because he'd had he came from a very um, disruptive household and um, uh, his, both his parents were alcoholics and, and his father used to beat his mother and all, all, all sorts of um, you know, troubling stuff that Marlon was dealing with in these hypnosis tapes but I mean, that's just one thing. There was, I mean, all, he all was always surprised. I mean, he was very, very humorous, very interesting. And, and uh, yeah, I I, I could let, I, I won't go on, but there's lots of stuff. As
1: I said before, listen to me, Marlon's playing at the Egyptian Theatre in about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, we're out of time here. I want to remind you, tomorrow, uh, be back here at noon for a conversation with the makers of Finder's Keepers. I uh, want to tell you again, see, listen to me, Marlon, Best of Enemies, Tig, Being Evil, Kurt Cobain montage of Hack. Go check out Doc Club over there in the corner. Thanks very much for coming. Thanks especially to our panelists. Thank
4: you, Thank you. for having us.